this morning. Please open them and turn to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 18, we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 14, the same passage we looked at last week. Luke 18, 9 through 14. And as you're turning there, consider this. Um, I'm about to make an admission. One of my favorite things uh, to do in my free time is to watch movies. Uh, I've told you that before. And one of my favorite screenwriters, producers, directors, um, you may not have heard this name before, uh, but his name is Christopher Nolan. And he's incredible. And he did something very interesting recently. Uh, he, he produced and he wrote the, um, the Batman trilogy. If you've seen any of these movies, um, he's produced and written all of them. Not family movies, so don't go out and rent them. Uh, but very, very well done. And, and he did something very unique in, in the story. And, and what he did was this. Um, he, was, he was trying to wrestle with separating two characters in the story. One character was this, was this masked vigilante Batman, right? And, and on the other hand, he had this character, Bruce Wayne. Now, we, we know him as the same people, right? We've got the businessman during the day, Bruce Wayne. And then at night, he puts on the cape and the cowl and he becomes... The Batman, And so when you're looking at the movie visually, you can see a difference between the two people. You can tell by their voice. You can tell by the way they look. You can tell by the way they dress. But he, he wanted to take the level of separation. Um, he, wanted to, he wanted to take it one level deeper. And here's what he did. He hired, instead of one composer for the soundtrack, he hired two. And he told one composer this. When, when, you, see the, when you see the superhero Batman on the screen, I want you to... I want you, Composer number one, I want you to write the music for this guy, for the Batman. And then on the other hand, he went to another composer and said, when Bruce Wayne's on the screen, either in child form or in adult form, I want you to write the music for him. So assuming you went to the movie blindfolded and they took out all the dialogue, you could tell who was on the screen just based on the music alone. Pretty interesting, right? Well, the same thing's happening in our passage this morning. Jesus is directing this short story. He's telling the story. And he's saying, look, these two people look the same. They're both sinners in the sight of God. But listen to their music. Listen to their song. And we hear their song in the form of a prayer to God. He said, listen to them both. And they couldn't be more opposite. They couldn't be two separate people. Let's read together. This is Luke 18, 9 through 14. This is God breathed. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. That they were righteous. And treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast saying, God... Be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray together. Father, again, how will we know unless we hear? In spirit, would you attend to us? Cause our lazy eyes to see the truth of this scripture. Open our hearts. Take what is, what is hard in our heart. Take what is hard in our soul and remove it and replace it with flesh. Like the seed that was planted in the fertile soil, a spirit to make our hearts fertile. Make our hearts receptive to your word. And Father, may we have the courage to follow you. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. About 12 years ago, my sister and my folks and I decided to take the trip of a lifetime to the island of Scotland. And what we decided to do was, instead of staying in one place, we were going to travel around the whole island. So we rented a car, and we traveled from landmark to landmark, um, from tourist attraction to tourist attraction. We got to see the William Wallace Monument. Uh, we stayed in Edinburgh for a little while. Uh, we kind of hotel hopped uh, from city to city. Uh, but long before we left, we decided to, to do something unique. We decided to end, end the trip with a bang. If, if going to Scotland wasn't good enough, we decided that we are going to splurge one night. We wanted, to, we wanted to eat, sleep, and live like kings. So my father arranged for us to stay in a castle. And I'm not talking about like a, a 20th century or 19th century castle that kind of looked like one and kind of pretended to be one. This one was built in the late 15th century, early 16th century. I mean, this was like a legit castle. This was Glengarry Castle, and it sat right out on this peninsula look, overlooking this lock, which is how, what they call a lake. And so we decided, you know, if the trip wasn't enough, we're going we're gonna to end with a bang. This is what we're going to do. We're going to spend one night, we're going to eat, sleep, and live like kings. Except there's one problem. From the moment we landed in, in Edinburgh, our luggage was lost. They'd lost our baggage. And all we had um, were the clothes on our backs. No doubt kits, no razors, no bathroom products, no change of clothes. All we had was what we traveled in. And we decided, since we're going to travel, we're going to travel comfortably. And I'll never forget what I wore that day, because if you look at our pictures from the trip, we're all wearing the same thing <laughs> during the whole trip. Um, I had a pair of khaki pants that were no longer pants. I cut them off, and they were shorts. White T-shirt, black fleece, hat, and a pair of New Balance tennis shoes. So there's the problem. And, and we sensed the problem probably at its greatest peak when we pulled up to this castle. And we noticed the grandeur of it and, and, and the beauty of it as we passed through the gardens and we just kind of went, we're a fish out of water here. This has the potential of being very, very awkward and very, very embarrassing. Well, in our passage this morning, we have a very similar situation. It, by all appearances, we have what looks like a spiritual tourist showing up to the temple. On the outside, remember, this is, this is a tax collector. He's a turncoat, right? He has sold out his, his Jewish people, and he's gone to work for Rome. And he walks into the temple, and, and there's this kind of this quiet lull of like, what are you doing here? You're the turncoat. You're the traitor. You're a Jew, and you're working for Rome. But by the end of the story, he's not going to feel like feel like a tourist anymore. He's going to feel like a king. He's going to feel like a king for several reasons. He's going to feel this way because um, the, the king's house rules are a little bit different than ours. The way he operates, the way he runs his house is a little bit different. It's a bit counterintuitive. Um, and if you're going to take notes this morning, my points are simply this. These are the, the king's house rules, and there's three of them. And if you come to the king's house, king's house this is what you do. You come empty-handed. You come hungry, and you mind the concierge. Three points. You come empty-handed, you come hungry, and you mind the concierge. Okay, so first, the first house rule of the king's castle is this, is come empty-handed. And, and this was probably perhaps the most concerning thing for us when we arrived at the castle is we had, we had nothing. We had what we had on our backs. We had absolutely nothing else. We came to this castle empty-handed, and I'll never forget the conversation we had in the car before we walked in. We said, okay, we can bail. We can leave. We can go find something different. This has the, the potential of being very embarrassing for us. 
are we going to do this? And we said, yeah, let's, let's, let's muster our, our energies here and let's go in. And I'll never forget walking in the front doors. If the outside was beautiful, the inside was, it was exquisite. Um, I'll never forget the carpets, the paintings, the rugs. And at the end of the hall, we met the concierge. And we said, yes, we're Americans, number one. <laughs> number two, we lost our luggage. We don't have it. This is all we have. Um, and in, in, in a very regal, but in a very quiet and, and passionate voice, um, the concierge just said, you know, you're, you're most welcome. Uh, we're glad you're here, and we're glad you're staying with us. And can I show you to your room? And we said, you can't show it to us quick enough. Thank you. We would like to get out of this grand hall and to someplace private where we can kind of disappear. Well, the same thing is here. The same thing is happening here to this tax collector. You know, by all appearances, it didn't look like he belonged in the temple of God because, unlike the Pharisee, in this sense, he came empty-handed. He came with no luggage. If you compare his to that of the Pharisee, remember the Pharisee walks in and his hands are full. He's got his Louis Vuitton, right? And he walks in and he begins to unpack and he says, Lord, this is what I do. Here's what I've done for you this week. And not only have, have I done these things for you, but here's what I haven't done. These are, the, these are things I've refrained from. And he begins to publicly show his clothes and his baggage. Oppositely, we have this, this seven-word prayer from the tax collector. And the prayer is this in verse 13. It says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's all he says. And I want us to focus on this word sinner for just a minute because we're, we're tempted to gloss over it because it's such, a, it's such a popular word these days. What he says here and what we can't see in the English is, is he says this first. God, I'm not a sinner, I'm the sinner. It doesn't appear in our English. He says, you know, um, if, if there's somebody in this relationship that's in the wrong, um, it's me. I am the sinner. I'm not just your kind of run-of-the-mill average. I'm just like everybody else. He says, I'm the sinner. A little bit further, here's what it means. The tax collector could have come in and said, okay, God, you got me on this one. You know what the Pharisee said? The Pharisee accused me of being an extortioner. I am. I'm a glorified thief. I steal money from my people, and I give it to the enemy. Okay, you got me. I'm an extortioner. I steal. I confess that before you. But he doesn't use the specific term here. He uses something different. He uses the term sinner. And what this term means is it's very comprehensive, He's saying, I, I, not just when I deal with money, not just in my, in, my, in my private financial interactions. He says, in my whole being. I'm not just an extortioner. I'm a sinner. This is a very broad term. This is to be exhaustive. He, he's saying, I am a sinner, much like we are fans of our favorite team. 24-7, 365, I breathe this stuff. And if there's a party here that's at fault, and by party I mean human being to God. Between the two of us, if there's somebody here at fault, it's me. I'm the sinner. What he's saying to us is, is what's happened in Genesis 3, this thing, this fall of man, this rebellion against God. He's saying, I believe it. I believe it. I'm not going to fake. I'm not going to pose. I am the sinner. And this is why he behaves the way he does, right? Look at his behavior at the beginning of 13. Let me read, for it, read it for you again. Listen to what he does before he prays. But the tax collector standing far off would not lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
You see, the reason why he stands far off is because he truly believes in and of himself that he does not deserve the presence of God. He doesn't have the guts. He doesn't have the gall to say, yeah, I deserve the presence of God. I can walk right in there. He's saying, no, I don't deserve that. I believe in my heart of hearts that I'm separate from God. He is holy and I'm not. And I can't even bring myself to walk in the temple. That's why he can't lift his eyes and look to heaven when he prays because he believes he's not entitled and doesn't have the right to look in the face of God. And that's why he beats his breast, because he believes that punishment is due for his sin. Punishment is due for his rebellion. Punishment is due for his stealing from his own people. And that's why he begins to beat his body. He says, I deserve this. But he comes to the temple. He comes empty-handed. And in turn, he leaves a king. A couple thoughts here this morning before we move on to the next point. And let me put it this way. For some of you, it was all you could do this morning to muster your energy, to put clothes on, and walk into the church doors and, and sit in here this morning. Not, not because you were tired, uh, and not because you were um, exhausted and had a busy work week, and not because you had something better to do. It's because you, like this tax collector, have this deep-seated sense of your unworthiness before God. You feel like you have no business being here. To put it another way, this week, perhaps you did this. Perhaps unjustly, you unloaded on your spouse. Or you unloaded on one of your kids. Maybe it happened on the way here. And you may not show it on your face, but you're sitting in the seat going, I cannot wait for the benediction because I don't like feeling like this. I don't like this sense of unworthiness. I don't like coming into the presence of God empty-handed. I have nothing to offer. I can't believe what I just did. And it was all you could do to muster your strength to come in here this morning. Well, to you, I say this. If this story is true, and if Jesus is right, and if what he's saying is right, he's saying, no, actually, you are in the right place. You who feel like you have nothing to offer God, you who have come empty-handed, you of all people, you are in the right place. That's what this place was created for. You see, there's a little irony here in this passage. The one man who came to the temple empty-handed leaves full. He leaves rich. He leaves like a king. Oppositely, the one who came to the temple full, with his hands full of his righteous deeds, he leaves empty. And I wonder sometimes if this is why when we get later on in the week, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and we look back on Sunday, we go, you know, I can't remember what the sermon was about, can't remember what we sang, can't really remember what we did. You know, didn't really mean that much to me. I wonder if this is the reason why. I wonder if it's because we don't come empty-handed. I wonder if it's because we come loaded. We came with our best luggage. And it may not say this on the memo line, but when we write the check, it says, man, I hope this counts for something. This is a big check, Lord. I hope this counts for something. And instead, in the memo line, it should, be, it should say, because of your great Mercy. If we come here, hands full, fully loaded with our righteous deeds, thinking that, man, this has got to count for something, you leave empty. That's what Jesus is teaching us here. And so the adage isn't true. It's better to give than receive. It's not. In this sense, it's better to receive than to give. So says Jesus. Second house rule is this. 
Don't just come empty-handed. Come hungry. Come hungry. We rolled into the castle on our last night in Scotland, and we were road-weary. We were tired. We were hungry. And, and because of the lateness of the hour, we got there pretty late that day. I won't forget it. And because of the remoteness of this castle, it was, it was, it was, it was so far from any other city, we had no other options. Uh, we, we sat there in our room going, okay, we can do two things tonight. We can starve. We can not eat. Or we can go downstairs into the dining hall where we have reservations for this grand, this elegant five-course meal. And we didn't know what to do. So we went back down to the concierge and we said, look, okay, you're you're gracious enough to give us a room. But we said, look, we have nothing to change into. What you see is what you get. This is all we have. And this is the way we're going to look when we go in. And and in the same voice, very regal, yet very sincere, he said, no. (laughs) He said, enjoy the meal. Please go in. It will be no problem. Enjoy it. And what he was saying behind his words was this. He's saying... If there's anybody in here who's going to appreciate this five-star meal more than anybody else, it's the hungry. That's who's going to appreciate this. And if there's anybody who's going to appreciate the five-star service that you're about to get, it's the weary. It's the tired. And so we kind of huddled up, you know, Pat and family huddled before we walked in and just said, you know what? Weeks down the road, we're going to look back on this event and we're going to go, why, why did we let other people's reactions rule us? We, we got to do this. We got to make this happen. We're going to regret this. If we don't. So we high-fived and said, all right, go team, one, two, three. And we went into dinner. And, and I'll never forget this. It, it, you know, when people say, what's your most embarrassing story? This is probably one of my top three. I will never forget the collective sound of, of forks hitting their plates. The, the, the silence. I, I remember hearing a few gasps. And, just, and, and it, you just wanted to disappear. I mean, I just wanted to find a hole and crawl in it. And hide my face. It was just so awkward and embarrassing and painful. It was just, ugh. But we did it anyway. And we sat down. And we had a glorious meal. We had an we elegant meal. And I'll, never for, and, and I'll never forget this either. I remember in between courses, our waiter brought us out this little bowl. And, and he called it some sort of sorbet. And, and his intent was, was, to clean, was to clean our palate. In other words, he didn't want the, the taste of, of the previous course to interfere with the taste of the following course, so he brought us a sorbet. I was outclassed. I was outclassed. It, it, was, it was a wonderful meal. We got more than we bargained for, and we appreciated it more because we came hungry. We were starving. We had to eat. And the same thing is happening here in the story. The tax collector, too, he's letting his appetite rule his behavior. He's letting his spiritual stomach rule his mind. And he walks in the temple and he prays this prayer. He says, he admits, he says, Father, I am the sinner. If there's a party here at fault, it's me. I'm going to state that. I'm going to confess that at the beginning. But then he asks this request. He says, Father, have mercy. He says, have mercy on me, a sinner. Two things I want us to see here. A simple request, but it's, it's so profound. What he's asking God to do to him is to be propitious towards him. And I know that's a big word. That's a strange word. But here's what he's saying. He's saying, Lord, outside the temple, he's beating his body and he's saying, my body deserves your wrath. I deserve your wrath. I deserve the punishment. I deserve to be separated with you. I have no right to look you in the face. Have mercy on me. Take that wrath, take that punishment, take that separation that is due me and place it on somebody else. 
When you ask for mercy, that's what you're asking God to do is take the wrath and the anger that's pointed at me and point it somewhere else. Not so that you can enable me and so that I can just have this, this clean slate because he can't stand the thought of being separate from God. He wants to look God in the face. He wants to be in the Lord's temple. He doesn't want to keep beating himself. And he knows this. The Lord, if we're going to be face to face, this mercy and this, this judgment, this anger, and this wrath, that's got to go somewhere else. You've got to be merciful towards me. I want to be with you. Take it away. Put it somewhere else. And we know where he puts that. He puts that on his son, Jesus Christ. But notice this as well. This request here, we can't see it in the English very well, but it's, it's not just a temporary request. He's not just saying, okay, yeah, you got me on the stealing thing. Be merciful to me now and here. The, the way this, this verb is tensed is, is not only be merciful to me now, but for my life, the rest of my life. I need mercy now, and I, ex- I expect to live by nothing except your mercy for the rest of my life. This won't be the last time I ask for it. If you've come this morning and you've got that that deep-seated sense of unworthiness before God, a sense of brokenness, your head's hung low, you're you're squirming in your chair, you're just going, "I, I have no business being here. And you're not beating yourself up physically, but you might be doing it emotionally in your own head, in your own heart. If this story is true, and if this story is correct, and if what Jesus is saying is accurate, then stop. You don't have to do that anymore. You don't have to beat your breast. You don't have to turn your eyes down. You don't have to hide from the Lord. What the tax collector is telling us and what Jesus is telling us through them is that there's mercy. The wrath that's due us, the shame that is due us, the judgment that is due us, God is saying, you're hungry? Come enjoy this five-course meal of mercy. Be freed. Quit beating yourself up. Lift your chin up. Don't walk around with your your chin in your chest anymore. There is mercy. And ask for it. Will you humble yourself? Will you ask for it? And it's a glorious meal. But as you consider that, also consider this. The path of the self-righteous, the path of the self-vindication, the path of the self-approved is not far off. Here's our tendency, if that's the way we walk in this morning. Our tendency is to take this guilt and this shame to God and go, God, I feel awful. I'm I'm, I'm wrong. You're right. Do you see my guilt? Do you see my shame? Do you see my repentance? God, that's got to count for something. And before we know it, we look down and we've got luggage in our hands. And we're beginning to take clothes out. And we're saying, God, look at us, right? Our repentance and our guilt and our shame has to be worth something. The path of the self-righteous is not far away. Instead, our response should be this. God, I want to be done with this guilt. I want to be done with this shame. I want you. Be merciful. Take this judgment and wrath to me and place it somewhere else. It's the only way to eat like a king. The last house rule is this. In the king's castle, you have to mind the concierge. Now, when the night was done, and the embarrassment was over, and we were up in our room after dinner, 
You know, I had half a mind to go back down to the concierge and say, yeah, yeah thanks, buddy. Thanks for nothing. All that embarrassment, all that shame, those, the, the cutting eyes, and just that, that oppression you felt in the room. I wanted to say, yeah, thanks for soft-selling that to us. It wasn't okay. It wasn't right for us to go in there. It was painful. It was awkward. We had to endure the locals. And that was hard. But as I lay there in my pillow-top bed, right next to the fireplace, in my oversized room, belly full of this wonderful five-course meal, having just walked the grounds of this castle, I had, I had to be honest with myself and go, man, it was worth it. It was worth it. It was worth the ridicule. It was worth enduring the locals. It was worth a little shame. It was worth humbling ourselves because never again will I be able to say, I ate and slept and lived like a king for a night. Now, I want to make us aware of, of one thing before we close, and it's this. There are, there are two main characters in the story. We have the tax collector, and we also have the Pharisee. But there's a third character in the story, too. And it's the one telling the story. It's the narrator. It's Jesus. And if, not, if we're not careful, we won't see Jesus like this concierge. We'll, we'll see him as a bouncer. Right? And, and Jesus will stand at the gate a lot like a bouncer will outside of, a, of an exclusive club. And he'll say, unless you have the right entourage, unless you look like you belong in this place, and, and unless you act right, and unless it looks like you're going you're to foot a pretty big bill, then I'm not going to let you in. That's how the Pharisee looks at Jesus. That's how the self-righteous look at Jesus. He's a bouncer, and he's not a concierge. Oppositely, and the tax collector sees him like the master of the house, sitting at the end of a long hallway saying, you're tired, you're weary, you have absolutely nothing. You're empty-handed. And you need to be fed. You are hungry. You are starving. I can think of nobody else who deserves, who would appreciate that more than those who are hungry. And I can think of nobody who would appreciate it more than those who come empty-handed. Come, heed my words. You gotta trust me. You gotta trust me. It's worth it. It's worth coming in. It's worth enduring the locals. It's the only way to live like a king. But in order to do so, we must humble ourselves. Let's pray together. Father, I know that there is nothing we bring to the equation. We can do nothing to win your favor. We know that your favor has already been won through your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, how we dance, how we posture, how we act before you, and therefore neglect your son. Would you forgive us for that? Would you cause us to rest in what has already been won for us in, in your son? And Father, would you give us the courage to humble ourselves, to ask you for mercy? to come to you empty-handed, to come to you hungry, and, and to mind your words more than anything else, to endure the locals, so that we might eat and live and sleep like kings. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.